All right, so this week I want to talk about one of my other favorite Christian authors and thinkers, and that's Simone Weil. Simone Weil is a pretty remarkable genius, like actually kind of an insane person in the sense of like she just is super unique and weird, but extremely insightful. And I almost want to say pure, just radically non-ideological, radically uncorrelated. She just has this amazing Christian sense of the world and a kind of philosophy that she works out very idiosyncratically in her own language, in her own way. It's both personal and introspective, but also highly engaged with the great philosophical and literary traditions. And so I wanted to just give you a very brief introduction to her overarching message or picture of the world. When I say that she's idiosyncratic or uncorrelated, what I mean is that she's not really participating in a particular disciplinary tradition. Like she's not trying to be a philosopher. She's not trying to be a theologian. She's not really trying to be anything or anyone. She's just trying to write and convey and also live according to her personal perceptions on the human condition. And those perceptions are remarkable and I think very impressive, very, very true. And so she's very on brand for this podcast and for me because she's not like trying to be some vision of Christian that she thinks she's supposed to be. Quite the opposite. She wasn't even born Christian. She actually is Jewish originally. And she never even really enters the church officially, although she was, you know, she was more Catholic than I am in her actual faith and in her actual life. She's has much more claim to being called a good Catholic than I can. And yet she never officially entered the church in, in some way. She thought that she wasn't worthy of it. Although she was very close with priests and she, she loved the church. My point is just that she just thought to the best of her ability and she tried to see and communicate the truth to the best of her ability. And it turned out that for her, in her own language, this was a deeply and essentially religious philosophy she developed. And so I think she's actually one of the most genius Christian writers, at least of the 20th century. She might very well be my single favorite Christian writer of the 20th century. And I'm not the only one, you know. I believe it was Albert Camus who said that she was the only great spirit of our times, their time that is. And T.S. Eliot called her a kind of genius akin to that of the saints. Indeed, she was, her own lifestyle was somewhat saintly. She renounced a lot of pleasures and amenities that a lot of us enjoy and went very far out of her way to subject herself to hardships and spiritual exercises like working with the working class in the auto factories. And when there was rationing due to the war effort, she subjected herself to rationing even when she had access to food. In fact, she was probably a little what we would now today call anorexic, but she had a rather fascinating theological gloss on it. As she talks about in Gravity and Grace, one of her books, she says that ideally we should be able to feed off of light like plants with their chlorophyll. She says that our faults are rooted in our inability to simply feed off of light alone. That's a little weird, right? But it's pretty profound. And I think it makes a lot of sense when you really read her books. So anyway, that's just a little bit of an introduction. Super fascinating, really amazing thinker and person. And so today I want to talk about one of her books in particular. It's a book called Gravity and Grace. The book is actually composed of fragments from her notebooks. It was composed after her death, if I do recall correctly. One of her friends and colleagues lightly edited the notebooks and pieced them together in a way that 
would make the most sense. And so I really like this book because it's really composed of a bunch of short, pithy statements and paragraphs. And it's relatively unedited quality really gives you, I think, a good look into her unedited mind. And it's easy to jump in and jump out of because although there is a logical structure, it doesn't really have a tightly structured beginning, middle, end format to it. So there's a bunch of different sections with different descriptive titles, and you can kind of just jump in to what you're most interested in. So like there's one called The Self, and then there's one called Necessity and Obedience. And then Idolatry is one, Love is another, Evil is another, Affliction is another. So it's a really fun way to kind of browse through her different beliefs on all all of these different themes. But what's most interesting and impressive about this book is, I would say, the defining underlying framework. And the framework is basically what she's trying to do with all these concepts is she's developing a kind of physics of the soul. She basically thinks that there are some laws, if you will, some basic functional relationships that define our emotions and our behaviors, but also our nearness or distance to God. And it's really fascinating, I think, and productive to think of the soul as a kind of physical system. And then to think of things like faith and grace and God, these supernatural phenomena, to think about how they fit in with our own limited human souls with the kind of predictive accuracy that normal scientific models can provide. The other reason this is a great book to read and to talk about is because since it's just fragments from her notebooks, a lot of these ideas are not really developed. She just gives a bunch of pointers. And this is exciting for us because it means, well, maybe we can figure some things out. Maybe we can develop some connections that she wasn't able to. Maybe we can really explain what these things mean and uh, flesh them out in a way that makes sense for other people in everyday life. That really hasn't been done yet. She remains extremely obscure. People still don't really know her name very well, let alone the actual teachings. So that's what I'm going to try to do. So let's start with gravity. Gravity is kind of this basic force in the physics of the soul. And gravity, for all intents and purposes, for Simone Bay, it's basically just rationality. It's like everything you think and feel and do on an everyday basis that is normal and sensible. It's like everyday life, basically. Almost everything we think and feel and do is a more or less automatic response to something which triggered it beforehand. So one example she gives a lot is when you're in pain or you're suffering in some kind of very acute way. It's pretty much like clockwork that we have this desire or tendency to want to inflict some kind of pain on other people. And she even admits it. it's like there is a good reason to want to do that. It, it can actually make you feel better in a perverse way. And so that's just one example, though, of just basic rational biological urges, essentially. What she says is this is all gravity. And you should think of it kind of just like physical gravity. There's this strong force that is constantly pulling our thoughts and attitudes and behaviors down, pulling it down towards the ground, just like gravity pulls physical objects down towards the ground. An even more sophisticated example would be, she doesn't say this, but I'm saying this, and I think it makes perfect sense, would be something like game theory as the scientifically sophisticated model of how human beings interact and how you can predict how people will interact. Game theory gives us all of these well-developed heuristics and mental models for, okay, you put a few people in a certain situation, we pretty much know what's going to happen most of the time when those people are interacting. That's what game theory does, and it does it quite well, whatever critiques one might have of it. It gives predictable tendencies or predictable outcomes 
of any number of interactive human situations. That's gravity. Those people in the models of game theory are basically like billiard balls on a pool table in the basic theory of physics. And I think one of the things that defines this force of gravity in the human soul, as Simone Weil theorizes it, is essentially just rationality. When you're just trying to achieve certain ends through the rational selection of whatever whatever means are going to get you those ends, so long as you're operating in this basic, everyday, rational mindset, the force behind all of this is what she calls gravity. And it is essentially a kind of subservience. Like when we are being rational, we are following laws that are outside of us. In other words, we're following a pattern. We are falling to the ground, just like when you drop a baseball from your hand, it falls to the ground. Humans being rational are essentially following these physical laws of gravity in a way. So opposed to gravity is grace, but to get to grace, we have to take a few intermediate steps. So long as you're living rationally, you are fully encompassed by gravity. And if all of the pockets of your life and your consciousness are saturated with gravity, there's no room for anything else. It is possible for gravity to completely saturate. What she says is that there needs to be some kind of void for grace to enter. And the problem with there being a void is you can't really make a void by expending your own energy. What she says, and I quote, is, in making it, that is a void, one liberates a certain amount of energy in oneself by a violence which serves to degrade more energy. Compensation, as in thermodynamics, a vicious circle from which one can be delivered only from on high. So what she's saying is, you can't personally force open a void. You can't make possible the conditions for grace to enter in. Because as soon as you try to do it, you're effectively canceling it out by the process of trying to do it. And what she says is that for a lot of people, the main way that a void is created into which grace can come is through true privation. So this is like what they say about how there are no atheists in foxholes. She seems to agree on some level. If you are placed into a difficult enough environment, if everything is taken from you and you have absolutely nothing to lean on and you are truly, truly afflicted or truly suffering in serious isolation, unconsoled, then you you will encounter the void. There will be a genuine void. There is something in which gravity is not rushing in. And in this void, grace can enter. And the watchword for grace, or the telltale sign of grace, is what she calls light. She says that if we could feed on light alone, if light were all we needed, then we would have no faults. We'd be perfect. We'd be sinless. In other words, we have faults and sins because we are physically bound to the need for all of these other things, all these other foods. Food in a technical sense, yes, but also she understands food a little bit more broadly, I think. You know, just the various things we, we think we need in life, like friends, and we need shelter, and we need all of these things that we consider needs. But what she's really saying is that we don't really need these things. We kind of do, but that's exactly why we are imperfect and fallen creatures, is because there are these things we don't technically need. Like you could just go into a field and not eat and not drink and not have a house and you can live surprisingly long right so technically on some level you you don't really need a house let's say but we call these things our needs because obviously on some level that's how we see them but this is the tragedy of our nature she says this is where our our sinfulness and faultedness comes in because it's our need for all of these things that keep us bound to gravity that keep us bound to these mundane everyday physics in which we are 
exploiting each other and competing with each other and, and causing harm in ways we don't even fully understand. And so the alternative to gravity is not grace in the first instance. In the first instance, it's light. It's gravity versus light is what she says. And this, by the way, is I think why in her own life she was obsessed with different kinds of self-inflicted trials of privation. You know, she did actually go very far out of her way throughout her life to experience privation and, and serious hardship. And refusing to eat, for instance, in solidarity with other people who can't eat, that's a kind of literal attempt to feed on light alone. Okay, so she really put her money where her mouth is, if you will. Now, here's a really interesting argument she makes. She says that to be pulled down involuntarily by the force of gravity, that's sinful. But to go down voluntarily, to purposefully seek the base, that is actually the essence of art or technically creation. So basically there's falling down. This is like, let's say, a heroin addict who just can't help themselves. They are pulled by evil forces that are just out of their control to, to fall back down. They're trapped in this powerful gravity. And then there's people who want to fly towards the sun. This is kind of the, the Icarus myth. People who have wings want to soar. They want to go higher and higher. But she says, what about people who have wings and choose to fly down? That is what's called creation. And she says, I quote, creation is composed of the descending movement of gravity, the ascending movement of grace, and the descending movement of the second degree of grace. Okay, so to have wings, to fly in the air, to move towards the light, these are wonderful things, and that's a kind of grace. But really, the highest point of grace is what she calls its second-degree movement, its descending movement. And that's essentially those who have wings, who fly downward, who choose to go where the heroin addict goes, and where other fallen people go, to fly down there voluntarily with one's wings. And actually, I might say in passing that there's a strong overlap here with George Bataille in that Bataille was all about what he called the low heterogeneous, those people who have fallen through the cracks and are completely outside of society, completely stigmatized and truly marginalized, not quote unquote what we now today call marginalized people, but the truly outcasted who everyone actually hates. Bataille also located in, in this group a special political significance. He thought this is where the revolutionary energy to overthrow the unjust order of capitalism would come from. Simone Weiss seemed to think something quite similar in a spiritual way. And actually, it's a pretty long-standing kind of Christian motif, of course. And the question you might be asking is, okay, well, how do you do it? How do you fly downward? And I think she's surprisingly clear. Although, like I said, no one's really drawn this out. No one's really popularized or spread a clear, compelling message from Simone Weiss. She still remains obscure. But I think She's pretty clear in that, in saying that the key is essentially to act without reward, to hollow out your desire in a way that if you can learn to do things without any wish or expectation of any reward, that this leaves a void, in other words. And it's in this void that grace comes rushing in. And that if you act without, without seeking any rewards and you act without ever being rewarded, this creates a kind of vacuum which makes grace come. This, is, I think, is one of the more profound hypotheses that she seems to believe. And again, you should really compare this to the work of George Bataille, who came at this from an anthropological and sociological background, but he also thought the same thing, essentially, with this concept of expenditure without reserve. He thought that it was crucial that society essentially waste resources occasionally to a degree. 
And Simone Weil is saying something very similar, where human beings have to do things for no reason. They have to burn energy for no purpose whatsoever. And her belief seems to be that if you do this, there's a kind of almost physical law-like structure that makes grace fill the void that is opened up from that. Because she talks about it like an equilibrium. She talks about it as if like, you know, every action has an opposite and equal reaction. You know, this, ba- this basic kind of intuitive physics. She says the same thing is true in the spiritual life. So if you do something, you should receive a reward. If you do a good thing, you should receive an re- a reward. And if you don't, it's as if there's there's a little hole in the fabric of of things. And that's what she means by leaving a void. And that's where grace enters in. Okay, now the problem is that to act without reward is already a kind of supernatural activity. Like, why would you do that? Rationally, there's no reason to act if there's literally nothing you're going to get from it, if there's no reason to. So in some sense, the problem is that we are incapable of rationally convincing ourselves to act in this way. It, it just doesn't make sense if you're on the rational level. So to do the thing that brings the grace of God into life, in other words, to act without receiving a reward, so the void gets created and grace comes in, to even be able to do that initial thing already requires a certain belief in God. It already requires or presupposes what Simone Bay thinks it produces also. And that's the paradox. And her solution, the only thing to do in her worldview is to wait. Waiting, just pure waiting. You wait for the void. You wait for it to happen. You hope that it happens. And I think prayer is essentially that purposeful kind of waiting. Prayer is a kind of baseline experience of giving energy without reward. You're giving attention, but you're also purifying your intention. Like you're, you're paying attention to something, but you're not looking for anything. You're not asking for anything. There's no reason anything's going to come. You're not doing anything really. So you, you're not praying for good things to happen, which is a ridiculous idea. You're just giving attention purely, and then you're waiting. And if you do that, you should be creating a void, and into that, grace should come. Anyway, I've only cracked the surface of this book. So if you're interested in this, let me know. I can tell, I can talk more about some of the other, either, some of the other ideas in this book. But uh, I'm going to wrap it up for tonight. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you, folks. Later. <laughs>